0: new and, and different mindset, that could be perhaps the greatest gift that we get out of this disruption.
1: Hi, I'm Vicki Robin. In partnership with the Post Carbon Institute, I'm hosting short, to the point conversations with diverse cultural scouts, asking each one the same question, what could possibly go right? The invitation is to see through these wise eyes what is opening up in the present moment as normal is upended and next is not at all clear. These conversations were recorded a few months into the pandemic and in the weeks following the murder of George Floyd. Let's see what today's guest says. Hi, Vicki Robin here hosting cultural scouts to shine a light on the road ahead. Normal is over, next is a mystery, now what? And we're asking what could possibly go right? So we're with Tim DeChristopher, and Tim it disrupted an illegitimate Bureau of Land Management oil and gas option um, in December of 2008 by po- posing as bidder 70 and outbidding oil companies for parcels around Arches and Canyonlands National Parks in Utah. For his act of civil disobedience, DeChristopher Tim was sentenced to two years in federal prison. Held for a total of 21 months, his imprisonment earned him an international media presence as an activist and political prisoner of the United States government. He has used this as a platform to spread the urgency of the climate crisis and the need for bold confrontational action in order to create a just and healthy world. Tim uses his prosecution as an opportunity to organize the Climate Justice Organization, Peaceful Uprising in Salt Lake City and most recently co-founded Climate Disobedience Center, which exists to support a growing community of climate dissidents who take risks of uh, acting commensurate with the scale and urgency of the crisis. So um, just before I pitch you the question, uh, Tim, I'm going to read off something that um, Wendell Berry said to you in a recent interview in Orion Magazine, because it seems to fit. And he said, the argument for despair is impenetrable. It is invulnerable. You've got all the cards, you've got the statistics, the science, the projections on your side, but then we're still sitting here with our hands hanging down, not doing anything. One of the characteristics of the machine civilization is determinism. You'll find plenty of people who'll tell you there's nothing you can do. It's inevitable. You can't make an organization uh, to refute that. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to cleanse that mess out of your heart. So here we are with this question. um, And you can ignore the setup. but The question is, what in all of this mess right now, could possibly go right.
0: Um, well, I think that's a a really interesting question for for this time, um, and you know, leading into it with that um, quote from Wendell Berry from from our conversation, uh, which I actually had with him last summer, and then was was published by Orion this spring. Um, it it just gives me perspective on just. How much my own point of reference has shifted um since last year just since that that interview that I did with Wendell um and and how much that impacts um my view on on kind of what's going on right now and and what could be emerging so um, so two big ways that my perspective has shifted is is one that um after having spent the last uh, five years living in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, in, a, um, in an urban, predominantly uh, people of color community, um, I moved at the beginning of this year out to Chipacha, Rhode Island to a, an intentional community with a permaculture farm. Um, and, and, um, you know, we're, we're an isolated little community here um, in, in a um, rural, uh, conservative and um, very strongly predominantly white part of, part of the state. Um, and so that's a big shift for me that obviously um, gives me a different perspective particularly as, as we're in another moment of resurgence of, of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and that national conversation. Uh, I'm in a very different um, viewpoint now um, being in this Conservative white community uh, than I have been for some of the last um, the last few surges in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the other thing that has shifted my my view on things, I think, um, is that last November um, I got rid of all my social media, just deleted it all, um, and <laughs> um, and got rid of it because I felt like it was. Impacting my thinking so much, um, and hindering my own creativity, hindering my own empowerment, um, and creating so much internal self-censorship that I had really like internalized a lot of that uh, social media culture of of critique, um, so that I didn't, so that it was already happening before I even like explore an idea or explore a project. Um, and and so obviously like uh looking at these these cultural phenomenon that we're experiencing right now um without social media for me is, is very different than um where i've been you know the last um really the last decade of being uh, on twitter and and um and getting a lot of my cultural feedback through that um you know and so you know, we've had the conversation here in our little community about, like, what is different this time around with um, with this resurgence of Black Lives Matter, um, and and one of the one of the things that that to me feels different, um, which I realize may just be because I'm not on social media, um, and if I'm totally wrong about this, don't correct me, um, I would, <laughs> uh, which is that uh this this moment feels so much more um productive and um uh cooperative from a movement perspective um less less focused on um purity and self-righteousness and um and those dynamics of of shaming and trying to like one-up each other and um kicking people out of our movement boat um that that i think are are so destructive of social movements um i'm i'm seeing and feeling a lot less of that um with with what with what i'm seeing right now from from the protests that i've been a part of and stuff like that um and uh and i really hope that that's true (laughs) and that it's not just the absence of, of social media in my life um and so i'm i'm encouraged by that, that, um, you know, we've kind of worked through um, some of those destructive social movement dynamics and are ready to like really claim power and, and get shit done here. Uh, and, and so that's really exciting to me. Um, and of course, seeing, seeing a Black Lives Matter movement through, um, through the eyes of a conservative white community, um, kind of on the ground at the local level um is a different perspective for me that i've had for for a while um you know it's been probably a decade since i've lived in a in a rural conservative community like this um and and that to me has also been encouraging um you know because i know that um i know that on lots of online sites um and sources of information um it's, it's easy to highlight the, the ugliest backlash um, to calls for racial justice um, and, and the, the ugliest iterations of, of white supremacy and, and racism. Um, and, and I think it is important to pay attention to those and I don't want to like wipe those out. Um, but it's interesting for me to now be seeing that just sort of at the grassroots level and not seeing that not seeing that like resentment um, and, and backlash um, and sort of like paranoia that somebody's coming for our privilege. Um, But uh, seeing, seeing a lot of folks that are just kind of like, well, yeah, like, (laughs) obviously they got a right to be pissed off, you know, like um, people that just sort of like get it, they might not be showing up. They might not be, um, you know, really taking a stand on the side of, uh, of racial justice, um, but but they do seem to be uh, understanding the the same reality of the world that um, that those of us who um, are out there fighting for racial justice and, and fighting to, to under to overthrow white supremacy um, are seeing as well that um, and and that. That to me is is encouraging because it's been so easy, particularly over the past decade to just feel like uh, we've got like this divergent cultural evolution happening in our culture. And there's like a huge portion of our country that like must be living on a different planet because they're experiencing such a different reality. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to see that um, plenty of that like silent middle of the country um, are still seeing the same reality, even if they're not necessarily like taking to the streets um, or taking to the internet to uh, to speak up about it. So all that is encouraging for me.
1: Yeah. It's so, I'm so interested in what you're saying about you know, my experience with the, um, with social media, and I'm I'm a boomer, so I'm on Facebook, I don't quite get Twitter yet. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's, it's so um, profoundly about identity creation, and part of identity creation is othering, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I am this, I am not that, and I'm these other things that you can't see. But, you know, and, and a lot of the the challenges, and it's not just the pandemic, it's not just this moment, it's you and I know that there's waves of change coming upon us, there's waves of disruption, and it's it will not be from people in the streets, it will be from rain or no rain in the sky. And um, a big challenge is gonna be identity, you know, it's going to pierce so many of our um, our armored layers, you know? And um, so is it, um, and I'm hearing from you that it, in a way, uh, what could possibly go right is that we're better off than we know we are in a way because decent human beings are, who aren't in that polarized fight that is so public, Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, is that your sense of things that, I mean, just from your little pinhole in your community, that there is some possibility that we are not as good or as bad as, <laughs> as we're characterized?
0: Yeah. I mean, I like that. I like that phrasing of it, you know, and it might be that that, um, that the pandemic sort of helped create that opening, um, where people have a different re- relationship to identity um, than we've had in the recent past, um, where, you know, I think in the, in the normal frenetic pace of, of capitalist life, um, where everybody's kind of rushing around and like maybe has some sort of like corporate identity, um, that they're expected to have because of their job. Um, you know, where like everybody asks, like, what, what do you do is the first question when you meet somebody, um, as in like, what, what are you paid for? um and uh you know people are spending most of their time at their jobs uh and then so much identity based on like going shopping and like buying all the stuff and you know like the the thousands of commercials that people are seeing and advertising that people are seeing every day that is like shaping your identity like you buy this you'll be this kind of person um you know the pandemic really disrupted that sort of flimsy identity making um that uh that was prominent in our capitalist culture um and people were you know suddenly like spending time with their families like in their home um in in the place that they live in the in like spending more time with the physical land that that they're on whether that's you know a tiny little urban plot or um more space in the country or whatever um they're spending time with the people that they care about um, their time is more of their own, you know, like, um, you know, I think for the first month or so of the pandemic, people were like, what do I do with my time? You know, and then people found that like, oh, wait a minute, there's things that I enjoy doing when I don't like, when I don't have to do something to make money all the time. Um, and and so with that widespread of, of disruption of fake capitalist identity, people might be more rooted in an authentic identity, um, where they're not so desperate to try to create this identity in, in that social media culture of um, distancing themselves from others, um, of like being more self-righteous, more radical than thou, um, whatever that may be, like with an authentic identity, they were more. Um, uh, I guess just more like authentically confident in uh, and ready to just work together with people.
1: Um. Do you see then? You know, you you refer to capitalism, and that is actually sort of the the thing that has us all in its grip. You know, and it's and it's laced throughout us so that we, you know, every time we move, where capitalism is moving with us. You know, it's just this this thing that we're all wearing. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like woven into our skin do you see that the pandemic and possibly this new iteration of Black Lives Matter is actually possibly losing, um, the capitalism is losing its grip? That there's some opening here, that, that there is some, some just, like, just like glimmer of a post-capitalist something that will be part of how we live into the collapse or is that too big Um, an idea
0: not not yet but i see um i see the hope for it i see i i feel like we are on the verge of that um that the pandemic really opened that door um you know and and i and i know people are really excited about certain elements that have emerged like um, the resurgence of gardening and you know people being self trying to be self reliant that sort of thing um, during the pandemic, um, which is somewhat encouraging. But I don't think it's like really a threat to capitalism. <laughs> uh, the The thing that I feel like we are on the verge of with the pandemic is a new relationship to our mortality. Um, and i I tend to believe that. Um, that a big shaping factor of um, how we've gotten here in the recent past culturally um, is rooted in the denial of death and the denial of our mortality, um, and and I think the pandemic sort of escalated that that fear of mortality toward, to the absurd um, and and to an unsustainable level. Um, And so where I see that promise is um, that in this sort of um, really freaked out fear of of mortality that people are experiencing now um, that I think can't last and and it's going to have to crumble and people are going to realize how absurd it is Um, as, you know, as folks are like trying to come to terms with like, well, I guess I'll just never hug anyone again. So that I will stay safe forever, and I will never have to die. Um, you know, I think I think that's what can't last, and um, and I think folks will get to the breaking point of realizing, like, actually, like, I would rather hug the people that I love, um, even if it means being vulnerable, um, than than pretend that. That I'm going to be able to control things forever, um, and and that will open the door to a new new understanding of what it means to um, to be this vulnerable little organism in a great big powerful universe. Um, and I think there's a there's a huge amount uh, that can um, then spin out from that. I think that's that's a really foundational part of our culture, um, and our new relationship to mortality, I think, um, can really be revolutionary and liberatory. Um, you know, as folks, as folks like Ernest Becker have written about for a long time. Um, and I, and I see more and more people, more and more like original thinkers writing about that recently, you know, so I think we're at a moment where sort of the ideas lying around, um, when when people reach that breaking point of like wait a minute this notion that I can like be so in control of the world that I can keep myself safe forever uh, when people start to question that um, I feel like there's a lot of good re- recent writings around um, that that can open up a different perspective for folks um, and there is there is that possibility for a big cultural shift in a relationship to death mm-hmm. uh, you know there's a um, a really interesting book by Drew Faust called This Republic of Suffering um, about the Civil War and its impact on American cultural relationship to death. Um, and I, I actually read that book um, when Drew Faust was the president of Harvard, and I was part of the divestment campaign there in the Divinity School. Um, and I you know I actually read it thinking like, "Oh, maybe I can like learn something about Drew Faust 's perspective and like use it against her in this campaign." Um, <laughs> and didn't find any of that, but got really got into the book and was like, "Oh my god, this is this is really profound. Um, that that just the scale of death and the um, the way that it impacted everyone in American society. Um, Created permanent shifts in in science, in religion, in in sociology, um, in grieving rituals. um, You know, really, really throughout society. And and I think we are potentially at at another one of those moments um, because because everyone will be touched by by COVID and by the pandemic. And because we're forced to deal with it in such different ways. Um, You know, like so many people's grandparents are dying alone, where they're not able to visit them in their last days. And, you know, they're not able to get together for a funeral. Um, And, you know, some really, you know, I think um, inhumane and and kind of um, counterproductive ways that that at this point, we're dealing with that, um, you know, and I think there's, there's the opportunity for that to um, kind of flip the switch to the opposite extreme, you know, where, um, you know, where we realize, like, you know, it's not necessarily a tragedy for an 85 year old who has lived a good and rich life to pass away, um, you know, but it is, but it is very sad if that 85 year old has to pass away alone without the presence of family and the family doesn't have any way to grieve for it together, um, and isn't able to physically touch each other as they're grieving and, and as they're dealing with that loss, um, you know, so I think re engaging um, with that relationship to death. Um, and by extension, our, our relationship to vulnerability. Um, can have a profound impact on how we then move into this next period of history on earth, where we are dealing with an unprecedented amount of vulnerability, um, where it's more clear than ever that we are not in fact masters of the universe that are in control of everything, but that we are these vulnerable little organisms. Uh, you know, that's, that's gonna be truer than ever. Um, as climate change really um, makes itself felt in in profound ways, um, and so if we're able to go into that with um, with a new and, and different mindset, that could be um, that could be perhaps the greatest gift that we get out of out of this disruption.
1: Wow, we only have like a minute, but I'm going to say that in what you just said was the word divinity and do you think that this metanoia can happen without a sense of a of a greater reality that holds us in both our our vulnerability and our sort of magnificence you know what i mean it's like do we need a do do we need a divinity a sense of divinity in order to go through this Radical shift where we accept our vulnerability, and you got to risk a minute or so. I think,
0: I think we certainly need um, a sense of wonder at at something mm. far bigger than ourselves, something that we will perhaps never understand, that we certainly don't fully understand now. Um, you know, to me, to me, religion and spirituality is the relationship to the unknowable and, and the unthinkable. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be the supernatural um, of divinity. Um, you know, the, the natural world and the, um, the interconnected web of life of which we're a part um, are full of plenty of wonder and, and far beyond our ability to ever fully wrap our mind around um, and plenty to give us that sense that um, there is something far bigger than us going on here.
1: Wow, thank you. I'm very inspired. So thanks, Tim, for the interview.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me.